0: Good morning. Glad you're here. You should have been handed notes on the way in, and if you'll grab those, we'll jump into this real quick. Uh, while you're doing that, one, uh, uh, just one housekeeping item, uh, this will be the final message in the series on tomorrow, today. <laughs> yes, how, do you, how do you say that? Next week, we're going to begin a new series, Thursdays, Thanksgiving, and then, lo and behold, Christmas is upon us. Are you ready? Yeah. So we, we were just, uh, uh, my house, we've already got our Christmas decorations up. I live with Mrs. Claus, trust me, it is it. It is the most wonderful time of the year. My house looks awesome. Um, but we will begin our Christmas series next weekend, and uh, the title is Great Joy. So interestingly enough, why am I even taking the time to talk about it, two things. So we're, our, our series on tomorrow has been dealing with uh, trouble and uh, uh, pain and difficulties in life, things that we deal with sometimes. It's been a uh, heavy-duty series. Uh, the amount of email that I've received from this has been unbelievably overwhelming, just uh, throw this out to you so coming out of a heavy series into one um that we've titled great joy and uh we we literally we use our big holidays christmas and easter things like that as a time to introduce people we use it as a bridge to introduce people to christ so uh last christmas christmas eve for instance we had more than 300 people give their hearts to christ uh last christmas eve we're going to use this series towards that means so it's going to be a very joyful series but it's one that if you've got friends maybe don't know Christ or away from him, or somebody that God would put in your mind. It'd be a great series to invite people to come to. Let's partner together. If you invite them, I promise I'll give an opportunity for them to find Christ uh, during those services. And you'd be shocked how many people uh, are, are ready to do that when we partner together and moving that. So I just want to throw that out to you. Get ready. I think you'll, you'll, you'll love it. So today, let's, uh, let's, let's jump into this. Um, I announced from the beginning of the series over the past five weeks that at some point we would deal with the very thought and uh, the teaching on tragedy and pain. And today we're going to, we're going to do that. Now, um, when I was studying and putting this together, t- two, two questions that I want to jump into and let me pre-qualify them. Uh, I'm going to talk about what qualifies me to talk about this or is it just because I theologically think these things are true is it because I read them in the Bible or I read it in somebody's book or are there things in my life that I have walked through that I can say hey I th- these are difficulties these are tragedies these are these are things that are hard to to put reasons to sometimes and yet I have found God's peace in those things or I found God's provision or, or here's the deal those things that happened to me didn't define me they didn't cripple me they didn't they didn't keep me from being able to go forward so, so, when I'm speaking here, uh, can, can, do I have any authority to speak on it, I guess, is the, is the question. So, before I sort of relate my qualification for it, allow me to say this. Next year, 2014, will be my 28th year in ministry. That's a long time to do anything. I look pretty good for 28 years doing ministry, huh? So, here, here's a thought, though. So, when I begin to share on, on some of the things that are, are, are difficulties I've dealt with, here, here's what I've learned. Uh, pain is a relative issue to the person going through it. So while I will share some of my things, maybe you'll go, gosh, that, 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 that does qualify you to speak about it. Here, here's the truth. Uh, even if you can't relate to it as far as it, it's, it's, you've never been through something like that, it, it wouldn't matter because whatever you're going through, it's relative, it hurts you. And then here's the truth too. I have learned this. So regardless of what story you tell, there are people who have gone through worse things than you. This isn't a one-up thing. So I'm not trying to tell something where you could like go, Oh, I've got something worse than, or that's not that bad. That's not the point. The point is what we do with these things, how we move forward from them, or do they cripple us? Do they stop us? Do they keep us? And that's what we talk about. So I just put on there real quickly, the qualifications to speak on it personally. It's my story. Some of you have heard it. I won't take a long time. The message isn't about my story, but it's relative to being able to speak to it. So it would go something like this. At three, my father abandoned our family. I didn't know him. I have brief memories of him. I think they're memories. I'm not sure. They may be things that I imagined as I grew older. It's only one or two things, and I'm not sure. But he abandoned our family. Of course, you know, as a child of that, male or female, you begin to get older, all the cliches are true. Children tend to blame themselves for those things. I always wondered was it me? Did he just reject me? Was it a rejection of my brother or my mother? Could he just not? have I never knew. Didn't get asked those questions. I was fortunate in that shortly after that, in dealing with that, my mom met a man, and his name was John Leach. He adopted us. He loved us. I met my mom and loved her two sons enough to give us his name. He was a great role model. I was very fortunate. When I was 11, he was killed tragically in a car accident by a drunk driver, and I lost two fathers. My mom in the place that she was at in life, and listen... It's one of those things without knowing all the details and without being able to walk where someone else has walked, you don't know what you would do. But a man came into our lives that she met who was an alcoholic and was physically abusive to her and her sons. And the stories that I could tell you would be horror stories. It always seemed that the holidays, some of those horror stories would be at their worst. I don't know what it is about the holidays. Holidays either bring the best out or the worst out in families, don't they? I think the truth is, it is what it is, but the holidays put pressure on things, and it brings out the worst or the best. It always seemed that our Christmases and Thanksgivings were always difficult times. We're always difficult times. Life goes on, and I grow up, and when I'm 30, my biological father comes back into my life. And There were so many questions I had, so many things I wanted to ask him, like, why? Where were you? Did you save up all my birthday presents and Christmas presents over the years and <laughs> <laughs> things that I wanted to even know uh, how about health issues what's our side of the family like things that were difficult so many conversations I wanted to have with him that I wanted to be able to ask him but it was so awkward And I I had become a believer in the meantime. So then I thought it was my responsibility to try to bring grace and mercy into his life. So I opened up my family and my grandchildren to him when he didn't really have a right to them. But I thought, wow, what a way for me to try to introduce grace to him. Grace is things we don't deserve. Things that we haven't earned. And then, in a story that is hard to even fathom, he gets liver cancer. And he dies in a short amount of time. And many of the questions that I had went to the grave with him. Things that I was never able to ask. And things that, even as a 50-year-old man, still bother me today. How about things that don't have to do with death? My life, I've got five children. One of them is 28. young man lives with us. He's mentally handicapped. I told Chris, you know, even if God healed him, I'm not sure that he would move out at this point because he has it so good that <laughs> kind of loves his life. But how about this? There's the loss we experienced for the dreams that we had for him. There's the loss that I see him experience. Listen to this. As time goes by in any parent of a handicapped child, let me talk to you for a minute. What you experience as time goes by is the time warp factor where the siblings go on, and that one's stuck. And They get married, and they begin to have children, and his or her life pretty much stays the same. And there's a longing in them for things that are lost. It hurts. So we deal with it professionally. One of our pastors, Holly Binger, Ben, her husband's the one who just made the announcements up here. Holly lost her father this last week. He had a disease that he dealt with over a long period of time. And, you know, in a way, Holly was never released until this week to be able to begin grieving for her father. Sort of stuck in a place. You know, when you're the pastor in your family, you're called upon to do all of the Things that pastors do. I do a lot of the weddings in my family. You know, pastors get the great honor of being with people on their greatest days and on their most difficult days. A grandmother, because of our life, who raised me for a time, died this year. And I buried my grandma, and that was a hard one. And I just think to myself, when I begin to teach this message, I don't want you to stand up here, or I don't want to stand up here, and I don't want you to think I'm being trite with the stuff that I'm teaching. So, what I'm teaching is not theory. What I'm teaching is not book. What I'm teaching is not university. What I'm teaching are things that I've had to work out in my own life, things that touched me deeply, things that scar and wound and hurt, but they don't have to define. They don't have to cripple. They don't have to limit. And they don't have to be the thing that you're known for. If you didn't know my story, most of you would never know. You'd never know. You can't look and just go, ah, it's obvious it messed him up. I messed up for other reasons, but not for those right there. (laughs) I throw that out to you because as I begin to teach this, I just want you to know it's coming from a reality and not from a theological truth only. So the second thing I put down in your notes is maybe the bigger question that's always asked when it comes to tragedy, when it comes to pain, when it comes to bigger things like this, uh, and and it's not just asked by believers, but it's the universal question, believers and non-believers, why would a loving God allow evil? If he's God and he's powerful, why doesn't he stop it? Why, why does God allow these things to take place? Doesn't he care? Is he that far removed? Is it a game? What, what's going on here? Gosh, it's so easy to have shallow thinking, to be honest with you. We draw little dotted lines back to God, and it's just so shallow. So a bigger picture would be this, that this was not God's intention for creation. God's crowning achievement with his creation was the man and the woman. And he put them in the perfect environment. Let me just test my audience, and I'll prove a point to you. How many of you are married in this room? Raise your hands very quickly. Okay, here is the proof of how this works. The greatest thing that can happen in a marriage is when two people choose to hold on to each other, to love each other, to commit to each other, and to make it work through thick and thin, yes or no? And yet the very risk of marriage is that at any point in time, one of the partners can look at the other one and say, I don't want to do this anymore. Nothing can wound as deep as that, but nothing's as great as when the love between that husband and wife come together. It's a representation, the Bible says, of the love that God has for us when it works the way it's supposed to work. My goodness, it's deep, especially when all of your flaws are known and that person continues to hold on to you in spite of it. If you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, you're the one that they're holding on to (laughs) in spite of it. What makes it awesome is that that's love. It's not robotic. It's not mechanical. It's not forced. It's freely chosen, and it makes it so wonderful. And Here's God. So he creates the man and the woman, and he puts them in the perfect environment, which this is God showing his heart for us. But in order for it to be legitimate, and in order for it to be real, and in order for it to be love, he has to withdraw his power and say, I give you the choice. If it was mechanical and it was forced, maybe it works out perfect, but it's not really love. Think about it in your marriage. If you force a person, it's not really love, is it? It's only when it's chosen that it means something to you. That's what it is with us in God. God gives us the power to choose, and with that comes, listen to me, both the good and the bad. Man chooses correctly and... It works out wonderfully. Man chooses to do his own thing. And because God has given man that power and that right, man chooses wrong. And the earth, the Bible says, is under a curse. Paul writes this way in the New Testament that all creation is groaning to be released from the curse. Here's what I know. Solomon 3,000 years ago wrote, God has put eternity in the hearts of all creation from the most hardened atheist to the most excited believer. When it comes to facing eternity... Everyone has that question inside that asks, what's on the other side? It's easy just to write it off. It's denial to say, I won't deal with it. It's nothing. But if you really are a thinker, and you really want to go deep, there's reasons for why stuff is the way that it is. So we begin to deal then, coming into this, how to handle tragedy. What do you do with it? Well, the Bible actually has a lot to say about it. A lot of it is there for our own mental health. Our own emotional well-being. To do it God's way, health. To go against it, you have the freedom to do it, but it costs you something. So I'm going to throw out to you real quick, in this time that we have together, how to handle grief, how to deal with it, what I would advise you today, again, one more time, look at me real quick, and then I'll take you right back to the teaching. I recognize not everyone is in the same place at the same time. I'm teaching to four campuses right now. We have people live streaming us right now. I'll have people that will listen to this message over the next several weeks. Everyone's gonna be at a different place. Some of you right now are at the best place you've ever been at in life, and I cheer you on. So what would I tell you to do with this message? Fold the notes up, put it in your pocket, because just maybe at some point in your life, you'll need the fruit from this message. So maybe though you are at the other place where you're like, Now, this is like right where I'm living at today. Take it to heart. Don't just hear a message. Don't just tell me amen. Do something with it. Enter into it. God gives this to us today so that it can change our life and it can help us. Not that we just become smarter, but that we live it out on the inside. Does that make sense? So what would I do if I had to advise you on how to handle grief? Number one, (laughs) the Bible tells us it's okay to grieve, but we're to grieve a particular way. We're to grieve with hope. Let me just mention hope for a minute. Hope may be the most powerful emotion that a human can experience, even more so than love. Hope causes us to spend far more money than we should over a situation. (laughs) To believe in something far longer than we should. Real hope, here's what Paul said about real hope. Real hope never disappoints. But do you know how disappointing it is to have false hope? So when the Bible tells us to grieve with hope, it's not that we're trying to tell ourselves a lie about something. But we're to grieve with the reality of something far greater than just what we're going through. So Paul takes the church in Thessalonica and he begins to teach on the idea of loss through death. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the entire chapter is about believers who have died and then the return of the Lord and what will happen to them and the order in which people are raised from the dead. And it goes into the whole thing. But in this particular verse, Paul speaks to the idea of grieving with hope. 1 Thessalonians 4:13, he begins brothers. So he's speaking to believers. This is a message or a meal for believers. Now if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you can still participate in it, but a decision has to be made on your part. What do you believe? So he's speaking to brothers. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. The word fall asleep is simply a metaphor for death. So if he were speaking modern vernacular, believers, fellow believers, I don't want you to be ignorant about Believers who die, or to grieve like those who have no hope. So there are two people when it comes to death and when it comes to grief. There are those who have hope and those who don't have hope. Where's the dividing line? A believer or a non-believer? Here's what I know. Every funeral I've ever done, when it comes to the internment part of it, when the grave is open and the casket's going down, it all comes to this: what we believe is either true and the rubber meets the road right here, or it's false and we fooled ourselves what is it? Because if you don't believe it's over with, grieve and you don't have hope. But if you do believe, we grieve, but we're not saying goodbye, it's only for now. All right, so I try to stand up here and teach a group of people who are coming from so many places spiritually, so many different understandings about what heaven's going to be like. Let me try to unite us very quickly. The first century church had an understanding of heaven that today we don't live with a reality that heaven was so real, so true, so close, and the payoff for all that we do, that their heads were there. Now, it wasn't that they weren't any good here because their heads were there. They were so understanding of what there was like that they were actually better here. So instead of being consumers, they recognized their position in this world was to represent the reality of another reality. They reflected that accurately in the way that they lived. The book of Hebrews says that some believers who were tortured for their beliefs refused to be released because they would gain a better resurrection. That's crazy. <laughs> How does somebody think that way? So let me try to talk. We live in a world, in a country, in a place that history's never seen anything like it. The wealth that we live with, but again, it's relative. Because even the wealth we live with, we compare it to someone who's more wealthy than us. Look, if your worries are the hotel reservation, the car running out of gas, getting in line to buy the new PlayStation 4, um, having to fight a crowd at Nordstrom's, you got rich man problems. <laughs> yes, no? So I get it's relative, and it bugs us. But that's different than whether or not you're going to eat tonight. And it's far different than whether or not you have a house or whether or not you're going to be persecuted for meeting together. Did you agree? agree? So it becomes a relative thing. And we live in a place where, where 2% of the world lives At the wealth that we live with in this country, and it becomes so good that the idea of heaven is so removed from us that we're like, to go to heaven, I would be losing so much. So now now, let me let me make an admission here. At 50, it's much easier for me to admit that than I was at 20. At 20, there were so many things I wanted to do. So many things that seemed so exciting to me. So many things I thought, if I don't do this, oh, it'll be such a (laughs) ripoff. And I've just simply lived long enough to realize. It's the law of diminishing returns. You know, this world holds nothing for me that God's not greater than. So I have grandchildren now. It is the payoff, but not more than Jesus. There's just a difference in an attitude. The first century church held the reality of heaven, that heaven was home. Heaven was their country, that their citizenship was stamped heaven. So they weren't living here and then moving there. They had come from there, temporarily living here, and were going back to there. So Paul tells us, don't be like the rest of the men who grieve without hope, but grieve with hope. God, how do you? One of the most difficult funerals I've done in the 15 years as pastor here uh, is usually with young people. With older people, there's an expectation. You know what I mean? It's not. It doesn't. It's not like oh, your old die. It's not that. It's 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 that there's there's just hey, this is the world, and the only way out is it's the human. Three of us admit it, and the rest of us are like, oh, it's not it's never gonna happen. Okay. Dealing with a young person's death is a difficulty. So I remember one of the times I'd get a call, and it, it, it's two things. One, it never comes at a convenient time because tragedy is never convenient. And two, it always begins this way, pastor, help. So in this particular case, a uh, young guy, 19, driving up 285, don't know if he fell asleep, don't know if he reached over to pick something up, don't know. But his car drifted, and he hit head on. And it killed him instantly. So the family calls to help us. So I've gotten very comfortable saying this to families. Don't go there. What do I mean by that? People want to know why. And unless God tells, there may not be an answer. And here's what we think. If God would just tell me why, I'd understand. Well, how about this? God explained how he created the earth, and we still don't believe it, so we fight about it. (laughs) So just because he tells doesn't mean that we believe anything. Agreed? i become comfortable telling people, look, don't go there because he may not answer. And if he doesn't answer, is it going to keep you from going forward anyway? So I'm dealing with this young man's funeral. And um, its you live in Highlands Ranch, you can't see it. But if you go into any part of Denver going north, look back towards the mountains. How many of you have seen that cross that's lighted up at nighttime on the hills? Right above that is a cemetery. And this guy was buried there. They had a lot of friends that weren't believers and his family was connected to a lot of believers, so there's this huge funeral for this young man filled with non-believers and believers, and I'm asking God, what do you want me to say to these people? So now I prepare my message and I get ready, and I've done it enough where I know how to put a funeral together, but God, what do you want to say to these people? And I am literally within seconds of stepping up in front of this coffin to these people to speak about this tragedy, and I get the weirdest picture in my head. At that time, my middle daughter, Katie, was at Youth with a Mission. You Remember, Dan Bauman last week was Youth with a mission, Missionary. So Katie was serving her mission at YWAM. And she had done her DTS in Kona and then had gone to Europe to serve her mission. She was serving the college campuses in Western Europe. You talk about a place, they've had the gospel for 1,000 years, and they are cold. Very difficult place to minister. But she makes great friends. And God begins to multiply what she's doing there, and she's loving it, and the more comfortable she got there, the less she called home. Any parent? Like, the more success she had, the less I was hearing from her, to where it got to the point where just so often I'd get a little, you know, message or, or catch her, you know, I'd, I'd try to... FaceTime or Skype or you know, I try to get a hold of this kid. Every once in a while, she was so busy doing what she was doing and being so blessed. Well, finally came to the end of her journey. And it was time to come home. And she called me, she said, Dad, I'm so sad. She's crying. Her friends are crying, and everything that she's been working on is gonna stop. And I'm acting like I'm really I'm so sorry. (laughs) This is terrible. Chris, come here. She's coming home. I know, I know. It's so bad. Tell them I'm so sorry. Okay. We find out when she's coming home, and you know DIA, when you come up those escalators, and you turn, and you got that little gate right there where everybody waits behind. We had our whole family there, and we all had signs. And as soon as she comes up the escalator, and we see her, we all begin to scream, get out! Welcome home, and it embarrasses her, and she's crying. <laughs> Snots flying, it's just ah! right before I step in to do a funeral. God gives me this, and He says that's exactly how I feel when my kids come home. He said, You have been where you've been for so long that you forgot where you came from. And he said, I get that it hurts, and I get that you're invested, and I get that your friends are crying. But I want you to know I've prepared a room for you and a meal for you, and we're standing here cheering. And here's what heaven's been relegated to in our society, St. Peter at the pearly gates and whether or not you did good to get in. And if you're smart enough to realize that's just a myth, then heaven is where my disembodied spirit floats around on a cloud eating grapes and playing a harp for all eternity. <laughs> well, who's excited about that? Paul experiences heaven, and then he writes, in the Bible, I don't even have words in English to describe how beautiful it was, or what it felt like. I've seen a lot of things, but I've never been at a loss for words. We knew what she liked, we knew what she wanted, we knew how to set our house up, we knew how to make her feel welcome. We knew how to touch the things in our seat. Here's the deal. I was far more invested in her than any of her friends were over there. Because a part of me was over there. And it was coming back to me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. All it takes is the right perspective here. To grieve with hope is to get. There's not loss. It's gain. There's not goodbye. It's only for now. There's not, I gave everything up and who knows, it's, this didn't compare to what this was forever. A father who waits, a heaven who cheers, a day like no other. And yet, even when I try to talk about it right now, here's the deal, it's still the finite, describing it to the finite, and unless the infinite introduces it to the heart, eternity doesn't expand. Do you understand what I just said? Ask God. Get a picture. So Paul tells us to grieve with hope. How do we do that unless we have a picture of what we're supposed to be looking forward to? What it's going to be like? God, we should do a whole series on heaven. A whole series. Let me, let me go to two. So we're supposed to grieve with hope. How about this? Grieve for a season. Here's what I mean by that. So we live in a day where people are reluctant to grieve. They don't know how to grieve. There's not much teaching on grief. So people do one of two things. They either grieve too short or they grieve too Both sides get you in trouble. To not grieve long enough doesn't give you closure. It doesn't allow the cathartic cleansing of the heart to happen. It's okay to take time to say goodbye. It's okay to have closure. It's okay to mourn a relationship, could be a marriage, could be with a child. It could be a business relationship, it could be a turning of events that didn't go the way you wanted to. It could be the loss of anything. It's okay to grieve it. But to do it too short or to do it too long causes unhealthy situations in our lives. So how long is long enough? Boy don't you wish there was just a calendar that we could run our life by? It just doesn't work that way. So let me give you something really cool that happened at our teaching team meeting. And I'm going to give my daughter Katie credit for something. Now, one of the things that's in my heart, too, too actually, I'm trying to develop young leaders right now. So I've watched our staff in 15 years. It's, you know, I, was, I was 35 when we started the church. I don't know what happened to all of you. You didn't get that. Never mind. Never um, <laughs> So so I've just looked back and I've just said, if we don't intentionally reach out to younger leaders and bring them in to positions that gives them authority, our church is going to age itself out. Does that make sense? It's just the way, so I've had to, we've hired younger leaders and put them in key positions. And then the other thing that I feel like has not been developed well in the Western church is the idea that God gives great gifts to women and the church ignores those things because it doesn't know how. To incorporate them into ministry. So I'm trying to develop some of our women leaders. My daughter has a tremendous teaching gift on her life. She can teach. I don't know where she got it, but that girl can teach, man. So I'm like, I want to develop this in here. So I invited her. Every Tuesday, we have our teaching team meeting. I invited her to come. She's the only female there. And I said, here's what I want you to do. I want to develop this in you, but I want you to give us your perspective from a woman. So we're talking about grieving. And I said, it is true biblically. That grief was supposed to be for a set season. Let me give you a couple of scriptures here that talk about this. They're interspersed all through the Bible. Here's one of them, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. After the time of mourning was? So that means there's a set beginning and an end to mourning. And it's all through the Bible. People mourned when they had loss. It doesn't just have to be death. Different things cause mourning. Even in America, up until 100 years ago, there was the idea that when a person lost, even the way they dressed denoted mourning, didn't it? Do you know that they even made jewelry less than 100 years ago that women would wear? It was called mourning jewelry. Not M-O-R-N-I-N-G, but M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And they would wear it for a set time. And it denoted that they were in mourning. And when they took it off, they went forward with life. But it was for a set time. It's a biblical principle. That's where it came from. So I looked at King David's life. Now, let me give you David a synopsis. David was an awesome king. His life this long but he made a mistake right in the middle of it that was really tragic. And it went this way. David's in a bad place. He's up all night. He's walking on the roof of his house. He's the king of Israel. He looks down. A woman is bathing, and he decides he wants the woman. So he sends for her. Now, if you ever get asked the question, how do you know that the Bible's real? Here's one of the ways you can tell that it's real. If a man wrote it, he would make himself look much better (laughs) than the stories it actually tells. So here's what the Bible tells. David sent for this woman, but she's the wife of one of his best friends in general, Uriah. David sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. He decides to cover it up. Israel is in a battle, so he sends for Uriah to come home and he wants Uriah to sleep with his wife so that it will cover up the fact that he did that and got her pregnant. But this man is so honorable, here's what he says. If my troops can't come home and sleep with their wives, I'm not going to sleep with my wife. So he sleeps in the doorframe of his house. So David comes up with plan two, which is this, okay? Okay. I will put him in the heat of the battle, the most fierce place of battle, with the idea that the odds are he'll be killed in battle. And that's what he does, and that's what happens. And even though he didn't do it by his hand, he murdered that man. And he took that woman, Bathsheba, to be his wife, and he thought he covered it up. Now I don't have time to go into all the details, but God knew what happened. And God sent some skinny little prophet named Nathan, an obscure prophet who only surfaces two times in Scripture. This time is key in history. He comes to David, and he tells David a story. And this is a story. He says, in your kingdom, you have many shepherds. You have one shepherd who's so wealthy, he has most of the sheep in the kingdom. But that wasn't good enough for him. He looked at another shepherd who only had one sheep, and even though it was a very nice sheep, the man who had all the sheep wanted the one sheep, so he killed that shepherd and took his sheep. What do you think should happen to that man in your kingdom? David doesn't get what's going on, so by his own mouth, he says this, tell me his name and he'll be dead before tonight. This man, can you imagine the courage that this prophet had to sum up inside of himself and point at David and go, you're that man. You did this. David could have killed him. On the spot killed him. But it cut him to the heart and he repented. And this is what happened. Nathan tells David, because you repented, God will spare your kingdom, but it's going to cost you the life of your son. So David went into a time of mourning, and the Bible says that he put ashes on, and he wouldn't eat, and he laid on the floor, and he mourned for his son, and he prayed to God, hoping that God would spare the life of his son. But the child died. And after a time, David got up, the Bible says this, he washed his face, he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped God, and then he went and he ate And his servant said, what are you doing? While the child's sick, you mourn and you fast and you pray, but now that he's dead, you get up and you celebrate? What's going on? David said, look, while he was alive, I thought, who knows, maybe God will change his mind. But now that he's dead, I can't bring him back to me, but someday I will go to him. He said, so I'm moving. It's time to close this up. But then it says that he went into his wife Bathsheba, And began to comfort her in her mourning. So we're sitting there at the table talking about this. I'd never seen it before. My daughter goes to me. She goes, that's exactly how it is. She said, because men and women grieve differently from each other, Dad. And I said, no, they don't. Now, Chris and I are about to be married 30 years. You would think I would know that after 30 years. Any other men in this room have trouble? Two of us. Thank you, sir. And the rest of you phonies, you go on. You... I just have trouble recognizing that that God made her different from me sometimes. She goes, men can compartmentalize things. Men can get over things quicker. Men can reason things. Men can just put things away without answers sometimes. But for women, one thing touches another thing. And she said, this story is exactly true. While a man may be able to move on quicker than a woman, his job is to comfort his wife and not to try to kick his wife out of mourning. God. Let me stop and say this. You yeah, have a very wise daughters. So let me talk for a minute. I wouldn't teach this anyplace else in history right now because it was a word for our church. So sir, maybe you sit here this morning and maybe you're at one of our campuses or maybe you're listening on an iPod as you're walking along the beach. I don't know. Maybe you sit on the front row and it's for you. But if you've moved on and your wife can't get over it, rather than criticize her, your job is to help her. Put your arm around her and speak tenderly to her. Draw her out and help her to move on. And don't expect it to be as quick as it was with you. Now, here's a truism. See if this doesn't make any sense. People like seasons are at different places in their life. It's like if you're at summertime, everything's great, the sun is shining, you're growing. Ah. But how many of you know sometimes people are in wintertime in life? Can I tell you what I've learned? You can't kick anybody to get them out of winter. You put your arm around them, and you slowly help them thaw. And it may take a little while. I dealt with a man and a woman who lost a child in a miscarriage. The man somehow was able to just reason what had happened as being a natural course of events. But the woman grieved. Oh, she hurt. She wept. And her husband at first was very emotionally tender to her. It's going to be okay, and God will give us another child. That wasn't the answer. It was a grieving time that she needed to be able to get over what had happened to her. And he came to me and he said, what do I do? I don't know how to help her. I don't know how to make it okay. And I said, you can't make it okay, but here's what you can do. Just go and put your arm around her. So now I'm going to say something else, and I won't teach on it today. It's for a marriage seminar at a later time. But if you read what David did to comfort his wife, the Bible says that he went in to comfort her and he slept with her. I'm going to stop. Listen, it's mixed company. Younger people don't need to hear what I'm teaching, but I'm going to say something right now. The world has taken sex and debased it to nothing more than an animalistic instinct and desire between two people who can't control their emotions. God created it to be a gift that heals, that unites, that strengthens, and that brings wholeness to people in their lives. Can you handle that? I just don't know if I like it. It's in the Bible. Don't read it then. Be real careful. We shouldn't talk about that. Don't watch Modern Family then. This is far worse than anything I just said in prime time. Yes or no? Grief is a seasonal issue. It's a time issue. It's a Process And not everybody does it exactly the same. And giving somebody the opportunity to do it the way that they do it is necessary, but it's got to end. So I bring you to three. And three just simply reads this way. How do you go forward from grief? You should not go backwards from grief. You should go forwards from grief. But here's reality. Not everybody does that. Grief is a place where people make a decision to either go backwards in life or to go forwards in life. Now, what they think is, I'm just staying in the same place, but it doesn't work like that. If you stay, you're going backwards. You've got to go forward from grief. So what would I say to you? Okay, well, number one, in Romans 8, 18, Paul writes these powerful words, I consider that our present suffering, notice the word suffering, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us later. Look, you're hurting, but you're not always going to hurt like you're hurting right now. You're not always going to feel like you feel right now. And if you put it in perspective, yes, you are hurting, but it's not to be compared with what God wants to do in your life from this. All right, so I meet with a guy yesterday. I have coffee with him. The guy's going through a really hard time financially. It's like everything in his life has just exploded, gone backwards. All, I mean, the guy, the guy was quite wealthy, and he's lost most of his money. He's going through a really difficult time. And this is what he says to me. It's like a cross that I have to bear right now like a cross that I have to bear. So I said to him, do you know that the Bible tells believers to pick up your cross to follow Christ? And if this is what you have to do right now, don't die on that cross. Take the two sticks apart and beat the hell out of the devil with them. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Are you just up there cursing? No. The devil sent this hell against you to kill you. But what he intends for evil, God can use for good. The very thing that was intended to crucify you If you'll let God do what he wants to do with it, he will take those two sticks and you can beat the enemy with it so that you go forward from it and make him regret that he ever messed with you in the first place. That he ever messed with you in the first place. Example. I've got the perfect excuse to read to my children as to why I'm not emotionally available to them. I've got the perfect excuse to justify why I can't be successful. I've got all that I need to talk about how I was dealt the wrong hand in life, how I didn't get the right education, or I didn't get the right pedigree, or I didn't get the right set of circles, the silver spoon wasn't given to me. I got all the excuses if I want them. Or, God doesn't change my past, but he alters my future. Ah, So that the curse may have come to me, but it doesn't have to go past me. Let me stop. I can wallow in what was unfair. So I'm not talking down to you right now. And I can justify an attitude, and it can define me for the rest of my life. i got plenty of reasons for people to point and go, "Yeah, you poor guy. And I can perpetrate it onto my children, and then they can perpetrate it onto their children. And we can just keep it going on and on and on and on. Here's what the Bible says. The sins of the father may visit the third generation, but the faithfulness of God goes to the thousandth generation. What I didn't get by pedigree, I got supernaturally. Give away what you want, because what you sow is what you reap. Did you just hear what I said? Never go, I didn't get it, so I can't give it. You have a God who is constantly willing to give you what you didn't get on this earth. You know, and I sit here and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder how people are actually hearing me right now. I wonder how many people who, because of what's happening, you can't even hear anymore. It's like a ringing in your ear. You don't even hear what I'm saying. Listen. DJ, at our teaching team Tuesday, gives me an incredible analogy. Let, let me just theologically ask you a question. So after Jesus ascends into heaven, for those who know, where is Jesus right now in heaven? Where is he? At the right hand of the Father. What's he doing, though, at the right hand of the Father? Sitting at the right hand of the Father. Okay, let me, let me just throw a couple scriptures there. This is interesting. Okay, so Ephesians 1.20, uh, the Holy Spirit worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. At the right hand in heavenly places. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 8.1. Now this is, this is the man. Uh, this is the main part of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest, Jesus, who is, what's the word? Jesus. Seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Now, okay, it's a word picture. The right hand, uh, the Father's right hand was the hand of blessing. And in order to pass on to the Son, the firstborn Son, all the inheritance, he would lay his right hand on. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father because he's the firstborn Son, and God gives him all the blessings in heaven. Belongs to Jesus. It's a picture. There's one place in the Bible since Jesus has ascended where he's not sitting, and it's found in the book of Acts, chapter 7, 55 and 56. But he, Jesus, I'm sorry, but he, Stephen, you remember who Stephen was? Who's Stephen? First martyr of the church, first one to give his life for the cause of Christ. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus... Let's do it together. Jesus at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. All right, let me just ask you a question. Semantics? The Bible is so carefully edited and selected. Simple semantics, right? He just he could have written standing or sitting, it didn't matter. They're interchangeable. When you suffer, Jesus stands when you hurt, he cares. When you are dealing with things that are unimaginable, you don't have a savior who's busy running the universe someplace else. He is the God who through mathematics and wisdom laid out the foundations of the world and the universe, but who knows your personality and the number of hair on your head. Here's what Jesus said about death, it's the last enemy to be conquered. Here's what God said he'll do on that day that we stand before him, wipe away every tear and remove every care. Here's how Jesus felt about death at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. He wept even though he was going to raise him from the dead. And then the Bible tells us this, we don't have a Savior who is unsympathetic towards what we go through but cares for you and I. The one picture we have where Jesus stands up is when one of his own is being hurt and terrorized. And Don't you think that God doesn't have favorites? Every one of us is his favorite. and he stands in the same way when you hurt. And somehow we draw a picture of a God who is so distant and far away from us and unconcerned or unoccupied emotionally with where we are, and he's the God who moves to the edge of heaven. That when you hurt, he sticks his hand out. And here's what we think. God, you know where I'm at. Come get me. He's given us choice. The ultimate ability to choose. All this power is available to you if you choose or the devil can convince you that what's happened to you you can't move forward so now if you're frozen and hurting I'm not kicking you I'm trying to put hot air or melt you <laughs> but God cares and his heart has turned towards you and I don't care what message you heard growing up the God who is God very much is in love with you he very much designed this meeting to crash into where you're at in life. If you're in the best place in life, here's what I pray for you. Let this be a seed that goes into your heart that brings fruit up so that when you need to eat of it, you can. And today, if you need it, be a partaker right now. Don't leave this place thinking, it doesn't matter, I can't go forward. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. He's here. How would you point your people then to receive from God? I would come to the end of the service and I would say this, don't let me just say amen and walk out of here. Engage with the God who's standing right now. Engage with the God who wants to touch you right now. Engage with the God who is emotionally moved on your behalf right now. Hear God call your name. So I'm looking, Chuck and Judy Peer right now, they run a ministry in our church called Grief Share. And it's for people who are dealing with the difficulties of a loss. How would you get involved in a group like that that could help you outside of our church? Got a pen, Kate, K-A-T-E, at jfc.org. Kate, K-A-T-E, at jfc.org. Email and say, Pastor John talked about a grief group. She'll point you in the right direction. It's a tremendous ministry. It's a way that I would just point an opportunity, if you're really, I need help, here's what you'd do, but you could engage God right now also, and allow the king of the universe to minister love to you, and I would so encourage you to do that, I would so encourage you to do that. I don't know what it is about getting older, but it makes these things more precious to me than ever before. I think I was casual with them when I was younger. Not that I didn't believe them, but I was casual with them. And as I get older and I see life, and I see generations behind me and before me, this becomes very precious to me. It's why I take the time to talk to my people this way. I'm not yelling at you, and I'm not trying to just preach my way through this. Trying to talk to you right now. God is here in this place. And his desire would be to touch you. And it's not some charismatic hoo-ha, nor is it some religious trip. And it's not something that we fool ourselves about. He's here to demonstrate himself in power in your life. And if you want to touch him, ask. Ask. And watch what he can do. Father, I commit this message, this people, this time, it's yours. God, God, you can do what no human can do. You can make the reality of this message a treasure in people's lives. God, I can give information, but you, revelation. God, I can give clues, thoughts, words, but you are action. You are power. You're a demonstration of the very love of God in action in our lives. Help your people right now. Folks, listen to me. There's going to be thousands of people who hear this this weekend. For every person who hears the message, they're going to have a different place in life that they're at. This message is going to be applicable in a different way to them. Wherever you're at, that's where God wants to engage you. You don't have to be going through a difficult time to engage the love of God. And yet if you are, what a critical time to engage the love of God. He's here and he cares for you. And as we go to this time where we open up the opportunity to engage with him, I encourage you please, before you run out, before you go back to all the things that you're going to do in your busy life, do the thing that really is the most important. Touch him today. Touch him as a couple, as a family. Wherever you are, let's engage with God and allow what I'm talking about to be a reality to you. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Stand to your feet, if you will. Let our worship pastors at all of our services take us into a time of response. So We've got communion, we've got candles, prayer, worship, many different ways that you can engage God. Take a moment and do that.